BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Chapter 8 of Lady Audley's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 8 Before the Storm. So the dinner at Audley Court was postponed, and Miss Alicia had to wait still longer for an introduction to the handsome young widower, Mr. George Tallboys. I am afraid, if the real truth is to be told, there was, perhaps, something of affectation in the anxiety this young lady expressed to make George's acquaintance. But if poor Alicia for a moment calculated upon arousing any latent spark of jealousy lurking in her cousin's breast by this exhibition of interest, she was not so well acquainted with Robert Audley's disposition as she might have been. Indolent, handsome, and indifferent, the young barrister took life as altogether too absurd a mistake for any one event in its foolish course to be for a moment considered seriously by a sensible man. His pretty, gypsy-faced cousin might have been over head and ears in love with him, and she might have told him so, in some charming, roundabout, womanly fashion, a hundred times a day for all the three hundred and sixty-five days in the year. But unless she had waited for some privileged twenty-ninth of February, and walked straight up to him, saying— "'Robert, please, will you marry me?' I very much doubt if he ever would have discovered the state of her feelings. Again, had he been in love with her himself, I fancy that the tender passion would, with him, have been so vague and feeble a sentiment, that he might have gone down to his grave with a dim sense of some uneasy sensation, which might be love or indigestion, and with, beyond this, no knowledge whatever of his state.' So it was not the least use, my poor Alicia, to ride about the lanes around Audley during those three days which the two young men spent in Essex. It was wasted trouble to wear that pretty cavalier hat and plume, and to be always, by the most singular of chances, meeting Robert and his friend. The black curls, nothing like Lady Audley's feathery ringlets, but heavy, clustering locks that clung about your slender brown throat, the red and pouting lips— the nose inclined to be retrousse, the dark complexion with its bright crimson flush, always ready to glance up like a signal-light in a dusky sky, when you suddenly came upon your apathetic cousin. All this coquettish espiegel, brunette beauty, was thrown away upon the dull eyes of Robert Audley, and you might as well have taken your rest in the cool drawing-room at the court, instead of working your pretty mare to death under the hot September sun. Now fishing— except to the devoted disciple of Isaac Walton, is not the most lively of occupations. 
Therefore it is scarcely, perhaps, to be wondered that on the day after Lady Audley's departure, the two young men, one of whom was disabled by that heart wound which he bore so quietly, from really taking pleasure in anything, and the other of whom looked upon almost all pleasure as a negative kind of trouble, began to grow weary of the shade of the willows overhanging the winding streams about Audley. "'Fig-tree Court is not gay in the long vacation,' said Robert, reflectively. "'But I think, upon the whole, it's better than this. At any rate, it's nearer tobacconists,' he added, puffing resignedly at an execrable cigar procured from the landlord of the Sun Inn. George Tallboys, who had only consented to the Essex expedition in passive submission to his friend, was by no means inclined to object to their immediate return to London. "'I shall be glad to get back, Bob,' he said, "'for I want to take a run down to Southampton. I haven't seen the little one for upward of a month.' He always spoke of his son as the little one, always spoke of him mournfully rather than hopefully. He accounted for this by saying that he had a fancy that the child would never learn to love him, and even worse than this fancy, a dim presentiment that he would not live to see his little Georgie reach manhood. "'I'm not a romantic man, Bob,' he would say sometimes, "'and I never read a line of poetry in my life that was any more to me than so many words and so much jingle. But a feeling has come over me since my wife's death, that I am like a man standing upon a long, low shore, with hideous cliffs frowning down upon him from behind, and the rising tide crawling slowly but surely about his feet. It seems to grow nearer and nearer every day, that black, pitiless tide, not rushing upon me with a great noise and a mighty impetus, but crawling, creeping, stealing, gliding toward me, ready to close in above my head when I am least prepared for the end." Robert Audley stared at his friend in silent amazement, and after a pause of profound deliberation, said solemnly, "'George Tallboys, I could understand this if you had been eating heavy suppers. Cold pork, now, especially if underdone, might produce this sort of thing. You only want change of air, my dear boy. You want the refreshing breezes of Fig-Tree Court, and the soothing air of Fleet Street. Or stay," he added suddenly, I have it. You've been smoking our friend the landlord's cigars. That accounts for everything." They met Alicia Audley on her mare about half an hour after they had come to the determination of leaving Essex early the next morning. The young lady was very much surprised and disappointed at hearing her cousin's determination, and for that very reason pretended to take the matter with supreme indifference. "'You are very soon tired of Audley, Robert,' she said carelessly. "'But of course you have no friends here, except your relations at the court. While in London, no doubt, you have the most delightful society, and—'I get good tobacco,' murmured Robert, interrupting his cousin. "'Audley is the dearest old place, but when a man has to smoke dried cabbage leaves, you know, Alicia.' "'Then you are really going to-morrow morning?' "'Positively. By the express train that leaves at ten-fifty. Then Lady Audley will lose an introduction to Mr. Tallboys, and Mr. Tallboys will lose a chance of seeing the prettiest woman in Essex." "'Really?' stammered George. "'The prettiest woman in Essex would have a poor chance of getting much admiration out of my friend George Tallboys,' said Robert. "'His heart is at Southampton, where he has a curly-headed little urchin, about as high as his knee, who calls him the big gentleman, and asks him for sugar-plums. I am going to write to my stepmother by to-night's post," said Alicia. 
She asked me particularly in her letter how long you were going to stop, and whether there was any chance of her being back in time to receive you." Miss Audley took a letter from the pocket of her riding-jacket as she spoke—a pretty, fairy-like note, written on shining paper of a peculiar creamy hue. She says in her postscript, "'Be sure you answer my question about Mr. Audley and his friend, you volatile, forgetful Alicia.'" "'What a pretty hand she writes!' said Robert, as his cousin folded the note. "'Yes, it is pretty, is it not? Look at it, Robert.' She put the letter into his hand, and he contemplated it lazily for a few minutes, while Alicia patted the graceful neck of her chestnut mare, who was anxious to be off once more. "'Presently, Atalanta, presently. Give me back my note, Bob.' "'It is the prettiest, most coquettish little hand I ever saw. Do you know, Alicia, I have no great belief in those fellows who ask you for thirteen postage-stamps, and offer to tell you what you have never been able to find out yourself. But upon my word, I think that if I had never seen your aunt, I should know what she was like by this slip of paper. Yes, here it all is—the feathery, gold-shot flaxen curls, the penciled eyebrows, the tiny, straight nose, the winning, childish smile—all to be guessed in these few graceful upstrokes and downstrokes. George, look here!" But absent-minded and gloomy George Tallboys had strolled away along the margin of the ditch, and stood striking the bulrushes with his cane, half a dozen paces away from Robert and Alicia. "'Never mind,' said the young lady, impatiently, for she by no means relished this long disquisition upon my lady's note. "'Give me the letter, and let me go. It's past eight, and I must answer it by to-night's post. Come, Atalanta! Good-bye, Robert!' Good-bye, Mr. Tallboys. A pleasant journey to town." The chestnut mare cantered briskly through the lane, and Miss Audley was out of sight before those two big, bright tears that stood in her eyes for one moment, before her pride sent them back again, rose from her angry heart. "'To have only one cousin in the world,' she cried passionately, "'my nearest relation after Papa, and for him to care about as much for me as he would for a dog!' By the merest of accidents, however, Robert and his friend did not go by the 1050 express on the following morning, for the young barrister awoke with such a splitting headache that he asked George to send him a cup of the strongest green tea that had ever been made at the Sun, and to be furthermore so good as to defer their journey until the next day. Of course George assented, and Robert Audley spent the forenoon in a darkened room with a five-days-old Chelmsford paper to entertain himself withal. "'It's nothing but the cigars, George,' he said repeatedly. "'Get me out of the place without my seeing the landlord, for if that man and I meet there will be bloodshed.' Fortunately for the peace of Audley, it happened to be market-day at Chelmsford, and the worthy landlord had ridden off in his chaise-cart to purchase supplies for his house, among other things, perhaps, a fresh stock of those very cigars which had been so fatal in their effect upon Robert. The young men spent a dull, dawdling, stupid, unprofitable day, and toward dusk Mr. Audley proposed that they should stroll down to the court, and ask Alicia to take them over the house. "'It will kill a couple of hours, you know, George, and it seems a great pity to drag you away from Audley without having shown you the old place, which, I give you my honour, is very well worth seeing.' The sun was low in the skies as they took a short-cut through the meadows, and crossed a stile into the avenue leading to the archway a lurid, heavy-looking, ominous sunset, and a deathly stillness in the air, which frightened the birds that had a mind to sing, 
and left the field open to a few captious frogs croaking in the ditches. Still as the atmosphere was, the leaves rustled with that sinister, shivering motion which proceeds from no outer cause, but is rather an instinctive shudder of the frail branches, prescient of a coming storm. That stupid clock, which knew no middle course, and always skipped from one hour to the other, pointed to seven as the young men passed under the archway, but for all that it was nearer eight. They found Alicia in the lime-walk, wandering listlessly up and down under the black shadow of the trees, from which every now and then a withered leaf flapped slowly to the ground. Strange to say, George Tallboys, who very seldom observed anything, took particular notice of this place. "'It ought to be an avenue in a churchyard,' he said. "'How peacefully the dead might sleep under this sombre shade. I wish the churchyard at Ventnor was like this.' They walked on to the ruined well, and Alicia told them some old legend connected with the spot, some gloomy story, such as those always attached to an old house, as if the past were one dark page of sorrow and crime. "'We want to see the house before it is dark, Alicia.' said Robert. "'Then we must be quick,' she answered. "'Come!' She led the way through an open French window, modernized a few years before, into the library, and thence to the hall. In the hall they passed my lady's pale-faced maid, who looked furtively under her white eyelashes at the two young men. They were going upstairs, when Alicia turned and spoke to the girl. "'After we have been in the drawing-room, I should like to show these gentlemen Lady Audley's rooms. Are they in good order, Phoebe? Yes, miss. But the door of the ante-room is locked, and I fancy that my lady has taken the key to London. Taken the key? Impossible! cried Alicia. Indeed, miss, I think she has. I cannot find it, and it always used to be in the door. I declare, said Alicia, impatiently, that is not at all unlike my lady to have taken this silly freak into her head. I dare say she was afraid we should go into her rooms, and pry about among her pretty dresses, and meddle with her jewellery. It is very provoking, for the best pictures in the house are in that antechamber. There is her own portrait, too, unfinished, but wonderfully like." "'Her portrait!' exclaimed Robert Audley. "'I would give anything to see it, for I have only an imperfect notion of her face. Is there no other way of getting into the room, Alicia?' "'Another way?' "'Yes. Is there any door leading through some of the other rooms by which we can contrive to get into hers?' His cousin shook her head, and conducted them into a corridor where there were some family portraits. She showed them a tapestried chamber, the large figures upon the faded canvas looking threatening in the dusky light. "'That fellow with the battle-axe looks as if he wanted to split George's head open,' said Mr. Audley, pointing to a fierce warrior, whose uplifted arm appeared above George Tallboy's dark hair. "'Come out of this room, Alicia,' added the young man nervously. "'I believe it's damp, or else haunted. Indeed, I believe all ghosts to be the result of damp or dyspepsia. You sleep in a damp bed, you awake suddenly in the dead of night with a cold shiver, and see an old lady in the court costume of George I's time sitting at the foot of the bed. The old lady's indigestion, and the cold shiver is a damp sheet.' There were lighted candles in the drawing-room. No new-fangled lamps had ever made their appearance at Audley Court. Sir Michael's rooms were lighted by honest, thick, yellow-looking wax candles, in massive silver candlesticks, and in sconces against the walls. There was very little to see in the drawing-room, 
and George Talboys soon grew tired of staring at the handsome modern furniture, and at a few pictures of some of the academicians. "'Isn't there a secret passage, or an old oak chest, or something of that kind, somewhere about the place, Alicia?' asked Robert. "'To be sure!' cried Miss Audley, with a vehemence that startled her cousin. "'Of course! Why didn't I think of it before? How stupid of me, to be sure!' "'Why stupid?' "'Because, if you don't mind crawling upon your hands and knees, you can see my lady's apartments, for that passage communicates with her dressing-room. She doesn't know of it herself, I believe. How astonished she'd be if some black-visored burglar with a dark lantern would arise through the floor some night as she sat before her looking-glass having her hair dressed for a party.' "'Shall we try the secret passage, George?' asked Mr. Audley. "'Yes, if you wish it.' Alicia led them into the room which had once been her nursery. It was now disused, except on very rare occasions when the house was full of company. Robert Audley lifted a corner of the carpet, according to his cousin's directions, and disclosed a rudely cut trap-door in the oak flooring. "'Now listen to me,' said Alicia. "'You must let yourself down by the hands into the passage, which is about four feet high. Stoop your head, walk straight along it till you come to a sharp turn, which will take you to the left.' and at the extreme end of it you will find a short ladder below a trap-door like this, which you will have to unbolt. That door opens into the flooring of my lady's dressing-room, which is only covered with a square Persian carpet that you can easily manage to raise. You understand me? Perfectly. Then take the light. Mr. Tallboys will follow you. I give you twenty minutes for your inspection of the paintings—that is, about a minute apiece—and at the end of that time I shall expect to see you return." Robert obeyed her implicitly, and George, submissively following his friend, found himself, in five minutes, standing amidst the elegant disorder of Lady Audley's dressing-room. She had left the house in a hurry on her unlooked-for journey to London, and the whole of her glittering toilette apparatus lay about on the marble dressing-table. The atmosphere of the room was almost oppressive, for the rich odours of perfumes in bottles whose gold stoppers had not been replaced. A bunch of hothouse flowers was withering upon a tiny writing-table. Two or three handsome dresses lay in a heap upon the ground, and the open doors of a wardrobe revealed the treasures within. Jewelry, ivory-backed hair-brushes, and exquisite china were scattered here and there about the apartment. George Tallboys saw his bearded face, and tall, gaunt figure reflected in the glass, and wondered to see how out of place he seemed among all these womanly luxuries. They went from the dressing-room to the boudoir, and through the boudoir into the antechamber, in which there were, as Alicia had said, about twenty valuable paintings, besides my lady's portrait. My lady's portrait stood on an easel, covered with a green baize in the centre of the octagonal chamber. It had been a fancy of the artist to paint her standing in this very room, and to make his background a faithful reproduction of the pictured walls. I am afraid the young man belonged to the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood for he had spent a most unconscionable time upon the accessories of this picture, upon my lady's crispy ringlets, and the heavy folds of her crimson velvet dress. The two young men looked at the paintings on the walls first, leaving this unfinished portrait for a bonne bouche. By this time it was dark, the candle carried by Robert only making one nucleus of light as he moved about holding it before the pictures one by one. The broad, bare window looked out upon the pale sky tinged with the last cold flicker of the twilight. The ivy rustled against the glass with the same ominous shiver as that which agitated every leaf in the garden, 
prophetic of the storm that was to come. "'These are our friends' eternal white horses,' said Robert, standing beside a Wouverman's. "'Nicolas Poussin, Salvatore, ha, hum! Now for the portrait.' He paused with his hand on the bays, and solemnly addressed his friend. "'George Tallboys,' he said, "'we have between us only one wax candle, a very inadequate light with which to look at a painting. Let me therefore request that you will suffer us to look at it one at a time. If there is one thing more disagreeable than another, it is to have a person dodging behind your back and peering over your shoulder, when you are trying to see what a picture is made of.' George fell back immediately. He took no more interest in any lady's picture than in all the other wearinesses of this troublesome world. He fell back, and, leaning his forehead against the window-panes, looked out at the night. When he turned round he saw that Robert had arranged the easel very conveniently, and that he had seated himself on a chair before it, for the purpose of contemplating the painting at his leisure. He rose as George turned round. "'Now then for your turn, tall boys,' he said. "'It's an extraordinary picture.' He took George's place at the window, and George seated himself in the chair before the easel. Yes, the painter must have been a pre-Raphaelite. No one but a pre-Raphaelite would have painted, hair by hair, those feathery masses of ringlets, with every glimmer of gold and every shadow of pale brown. No one but a pre-Raphaelite would have so exaggerated every attribute of that delicate face, as to give a lurid brightness to the blonde complexion and a strange, sinister light to the deep blue eyes. No one but a pre-Raphaelite could have given to that pretty, pouting mouth the hard and almost wicked look it had in the portrait. It was so like, and yet so unlike. It was as if you had burned strange-coloured fires before my lady's face, and by their influence brought out new lines and new expressions never seen in it before. The perfection of feature, the brilliancy of colouring were there. But I suppose the painter had copied quaint medieval monstrosities until his brain had grown bewildered, for my lady, in his portrait of her, had something of the aspect of a beautiful fiend. Her crimson dress, exaggerated like all the rest in this strange picture, hung about her in folds that looked like flames, her fair head peeping out of the lurid mass of colour as if out of a raging furnace. Indeed, the crimson dress, the sunshine on the face, the red-gold gleaming in the yellow hair, the ripe scarlet of the pouting lips, the glowing colours of each accessory of the minutely painted background, all combined to render the first effect of the painting by no means an agreeable one. But strange as the picture was, it could not have made any great impression on George Tallboys, for he sat before it for about a quarter of an hour without uttering a word, only staring blankly at the painted canvas with the candlestick grasped in his strong right hand, and his left arm hanging loosely by his side. He sat so long in this attitude, that Robert turned round at last. "'Why, George, I thought you had gone to sleep.' "'I had, almost.' "'You've caught a cold from standing in that damp tapestried room. Mark my words, George Tallboys, you've caught a cold. You're as hoarse as a raven. But come along.' Robert Audley took the candle from his friend's hand, and crept back through the secret passage followed by George, very quiet, but scarcely more quiet than usual. They found Alicia in the nursery waiting for them. "'Well?' she said interrogatively. "'We managed it capitally. But I don't like the portrait. There's something odd about it.' "'There is,' said Alicia. "'I've a strange fancy on that point. 
I think that sometimes a painter is in a manner inspired, and is able to see through the normal expression of the face another expression that is equally a part of it, though not to be perceived by common eyes. We have never seen my lady look as she does in that picture, but I think she could look so. Alicia, said Robert Audley imploringly, don't be German. But Robert, don't be German, Alicia, if you love me. The picture is the picture, and my lady is my lady. That's my way of taking things, and I'm not metaphysical. Don't unsettle me. He repeated this several times with an air of terror that was perfectly sincere, and then, having borrowed an umbrella in case of being overtaken by the coming storm, left the court, leading passive George Tallboys away with him. The one hand of the stupid clock had skipped to nine by the time they reached the archway, but before they could pass under its shadow, they had to step aside to allow a carriage to dash past them. It was a fly from the village, but Lady Audley's fair face peeped out at the window. Dark as it was, she could see the two figures of the young men black against the dusk. "'Who is that?' she asked, putting out her head. "'Is it the gardener?' "'No, my dear aunt,' said Robert, laughing. "'It is your most dutiful nephew.' He and George stopped by the archway while the fly drew up at the door, and the surprised servants came out to welcome their master and mistress. "'I think the storm will hold off to-night,' said the baronet, looking up at the sky. "'But we shall certainly have it to-morrow.' End of chapter 8chapter 9 of lady audley's secret this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by elizabeth clett lady audley's secret by mary elizabeth braddon chapter 9 after the storm sir michael was mistaken in his prophecy upon the weather the storm did not hold off until next day, but burst with terrible fury over the village of Audley about half an hour before midnight. Robert Audley took the thunder and lightning with the same composure with which he accepted all the other ills of life. He lay on a sofa in the sitting-room, ostensibly reading the five days old Chelmsford paper, and regaling himself occasionally with a few sips from a large tumbler of cold punch. But the storm had quite a different effect upon George Tallboys. His friend was startled when he looked at the young man's white face as he sat opposite the open window listening to the thunder, and staring at the black sky, rent every now and then by forked streaks of steel-blue lightning. "'George,' said Robert, after watching him for some time, "'are you frightened of the lightning?' "'No,' he answered curtly. "'But, dear boy, some of the most courageous men have been frightened of it. It is scarcely to be called a fear. It is constitutional.' I am sure you are frightened of it. No, I am not. But, George, if you could see yourself white and haggard, with your great hollow eyes staring out at the sky as if they were fixed upon a ghost, I tell you I know that you are frightened. And I tell you that I am not. George Tallboys, you are not only afraid of the lightning, but you are savage with yourself for being afraid, and with me for telling you of your fear. "'Robert Audley, if you say another word to me, I shall knock you down!' cried George furiously. Having said which, Mr. Tallboy strode out of the room, banging the door after him with a violence that shook the house. 
Those inky clouds, which had shut in the sultry earth as if with a roof of hot iron, poured out their blackness in a sudden deluge as George left the room. But if the young man was afraid of the lightning, he certainly was not afraid of the rain, for he walked straight downstairs to the inn door and went out into the wet high road. He walked up and down, up and down in the soaking shower for about twenty minutes, and then, re-entering the inn, strode up to his bedroom. Robert Audley met him on the landing, with his hair beaten about his white face and his garments dripping wet. "'Are you going to bed, George?' "'Yes.' "'But you have no candle?' "'I don't want one.' "'But look at your clothes, man! Do you see the wet streaming down your coat-sleeves? What on earth made you go out upon such a night?' "'I am tired, and want to go to bed. Don't bother me.' "'You'll take some hot brandy and water, George.' Robert Audley stood in his friend's way as he spoke, anxious to prevent his going to bed in the state he was in. But George pushed him fiercely aside, and striding past him, said in the same hoarse voice Robert had noticed at the court, "'Leave me alone, Robert Audley, and keep clear of me if you can.' Robert followed George to his bedroom, but the young man banged the door in his face, so there was nothing for it but to leave Mr. Tallboys to himself to recover his temper as best he might. He was irritated at my noticing his terror of the lightning, thought Robert, as he calmly retired to rest, serenely indifferent to the thunder, which seemed to shake him in his bed, and the lightning playing fitfully round the razors in his open dressing-case. The storm rolled away from the quiet village of Audley, and when Robert awoke the next morning it was to see bright sunshine, and a peep of cloudless sky between the white curtains of his bedroom window. It was one of those serene and lovely mornings that sometimes succeed a storm. The birds sung loudly and cheerily, the yellow corn uplifted itself in the broad fields, and waved proudly after its sharp tussle with the tempest, which had done its best to beat down the heavy ears with cruel wind and driving rain half the night through. The vine-leaves clustering round Robert's window fluttered with a joyous rustling, shaking the raindrops in diamond showers from every spray and tendril. Robert Audley found his friend waiting for him at the breakfast-table. George was very pale, but perfectly tranquil, if anything, indeed, more cheerful than usual. He shook Robert by the hand with something of that hearty manner for which he had been distinguished before the one affliction of his life overtook and shipwrecked him. "'Forgive me, Bob,' he said frankly, "'for my surly temper of last night. You were quite correct in your assertion. The thunderstorm did upset me. It always had the same effect upon me in my youth. "'Poor old boy! Shall we go up by the express, or shall we stop here and dine with my uncle to-night?' asked Robert. "'To tell the truth, Bob, I would rather do neither. It's a glorious morning. Suppose we stroll about all day, take another turn with the rod and line, and go up to town by the train that leaves here at six-fifteen in the evening.' Robert Audley would have ascended to a far more disagreeable proposition than this, rather than have taken the trouble to oppose his friend. So the matter was immediately agreed upon, and after they had finished their breakfast and ordered a four o'clock dinner, George Tallboys took the fishing-rod across his broad shoulders, and strode out of the house with his friend and companion. But if the equable temperament of Mr. Robert Audley had been undisturbed by the crackling peals of thunder that shook the very foundations of the Sun Inn, it had not been so with the more delicate sensibilities of his uncle's young wife. Lady Audley confessed herself terribly frightened of the lightning. She had her bedstead wheeled into a corner of the room, and with the heavy curtains drawn tightly round her, she lay with her face buried in the pillow, 
shuddering convulsively at every sound of the tempest without. Sir Michael, whose stout heart had never known a fear, almost trembled for this fragile creature, whom it was his happy privilege to protect and defend. My lady would not consent to undress till nearly three o'clock in the morning, when the last lingering peal of thunder had died away among the distant hills. Until that hour, she lay in the handsome silk dress in which she had travelled, huddled together among the bedclothes, only looking up now and then with a scared face to ask if the storm was over. Toward four o'clock her husband, who spent the night in watching by her bedside, saw her drop off into a deep sleep, from which she did not awake for nearly five hours. But she came into the breakfast-room at half-past nine o'clock, singing a little Scotch melody, her cheeks tinged with as delicate a pink as the pale hue of her muslin morning-dress. Like the birds and the flowers, she seemed to recover her beauty and joyousness in the morning sunshine. She tripped lightly out onto the lawn, gathering a last lingering rosebud here and there, and a sprig or two of geranium, and returning through the dewy grass, warbling long cadences for very happiness of heart, and looking as fresh and radiant as the flowers in her hands. The baronet caught her in his strong arms as she came in through the open window. "'My pretty one,' he said, "'my darling, what happiness to see you your own merry self again! Do you know, Lucy, that once last night, when you looked out through the dark green bed-curtains, with your poor white face and the purple rims round your hollow eyes, I had almost difficulty to recognize my little wife and that terrified, agonized-looking creature, crying out about the storm. Thank God for the morning sun, which has brought back the rosy cheeks and bright smile. I hope to heaven, Lucy, I shall never again see you look as you did last night." She stood on tiptoe to kiss him, and then was only tall enough to reach his white beard. She told him, laughing, that she had always been a silly, frightened creature, frightened of dogs, frightened of cattle, frightened of a thunderstorm, frightened of a rough sea. "'Frightened of everything and everybody but my dear, noble, handsome husband,' she said. She had found the carpet in her dressing-room disarranged, and had inquired into the mystery of the secret passage. She chid Miss Alicia in a playful, laughing way for her boldness in introducing two great men into my lady's rooms. "'And they had the audacity to look at my picture, Alicia,' she said with mock indignation. "'I found the bays thrown on the ground, and a great man's glove on the carpet. Look!' She held up a thick driving-glove as she spoke. It was George's, which he had dropped looking at the picture. "'I shall go up to the sun, and ask those boys to dinner.' Sir Michael said, as he left the court upon his morning walk round his farm. Lady Audley flitted from room to room in the bright September sunshine, now sitting down to the piano to trill out a ballad, or the first page of an Italian bravura, or running with rapid fingers through a brilliant waltz, now hovering about a stand of hothouse flowers, doing amateur gardening with a pair of fairy-like silver-mounted embroidery scissors, now strolling into her dressing-room to talk to Phoebe Marks, and have her curls rearranged for the third or fourth time, for the ringlets were always getting into disorder, and gave no little trouble to Lady Audley's maid. My dear lady seemed, on this particular September day, restless from very joyousness of spirit, and unable to stay long in one place, or occupy herself with one thing. While Lady Audley amused herself in her own frivolous fashion, the two young men strolled slowly along the margin of the stream until they reached a shady corner where the water was deep and still, and the long branches of the willows trailed into the brook. George Tallboys took the fishing-rod, 
while Robert stretched himself at full length on a railway rug, and balancing his hat upon his nose as a screen from the sunshine, fell fast asleep. Those were happy fish in the stream on the banks of which Mr. Tallboys was seated. They might have amused themselves to their heart's content with timid nibbles at this gentleman's bait, without in any manner endangering their safety. For George only stared vacantly in the water, holding his rod in a loose, listless hand, and with a strange, far-away look in his eyes. As the church clock struck two, he threw down his rod, and striding away along the bank, left Robert Audley to enjoy a nap which, according to that gentleman's habits, was by no means unlikely to last for two or three hours. About a quarter of a mile further on, George crossed a rustic bridge, and struck into the meadows which led to Audley Court. The birds had sung so much all the morning, that they had, perhaps, by this time grown tired. The lazy cattle were asleep in the meadows. Sir Michael was still away on his morning's ramble. Miss Alicia had scampered off an hour before on her chestnut mare. The servants were all at dinner in the back part of the house, and my lady had strolled, book in hand, into the shadowy lime-walk, so that the grey old building had never worn a more peaceful aspect than on that bright afternoon when George Tallboys walked across the lawn to ring a sonorous peal at the sturdy, iron-bound oak door. The servant, who answered his summons, told him that Sir Michael was out, and my lady walking in the lime-tree avenue. He looked a little disappointed at this intelligence, and muttering something about wishing to see my lady, or going to look for my lady—the servant did not clearly distinguish his words—strode away from the door without leaving either card or message for the family. It was full an hour and a half after this when Lady Audley returned to the house, not coming from the lime-walk, but from exactly the opposite direction carrying her open book in her hand, and singing as she came. Alicia had just dismounted from her mare, and stood in the low-arched doorway with her great Newfoundland dog by her side. The dog, which had never liked my lady, showed his teeth with a suppressed growl. "'Send that hard animal away, Alicia,' Lady Audley said impatiently. "'The brute knows that I am frightened of him, and takes advantage of my terror. And yet they call the creatures generous and noble-hearted.' "'Bah! Caesar! I hate you! And you hate me! And if you met me in the dark in some narrow passage, you would fly at my throat and strangle me, wouldn't you?' My lady, safely sheltered behind her stepdaughter, shook her yellow curls at the angry animal, and defied him maliciously. "'Do you know, Lady Audley, that Mr. Tallboys, the young widower, has been here asking for Sir Michael and you?' Lucy Audley lifted her pencilled eyebrows. "'I thought they were coming to dinner.' she said. Surely we shall have enough of them then. She had a heap of wild autumn flowers in the skirt of her muslin dress. She had come through the fields at the back of the court, gathering the hedgerow blossoms in her way. She ran lightly up the broad staircase to her own rooms. George's glove lay on her boudoir table. Lady Audley rung the bell violently, and it was answered by Phoebe Marks. "'Take that litter away,' she said sharply. The girl collected the glove and a few withered flowers and torn papers lying on the table into her apron. "'What have you been doing all this morning?' asked my lady. "'Not wasting your time, I hope.' "'No, my lady. I have been altering the blue dress. It is rather dark on this side of the house, so I took it up to my own room and worked at the window.' The girl was leaving the room as she spoke, but she turned around and looked at Lady Audley, as if waiting for further orders. Lucy looked up at the same moment, and the eyes of the two women met. 
"'Phoebe Marks,' said my lady, throwing herself into an easy-chair and trifling with the wildflowers in her lap. "'You are a good, industrious girl, and while I live and am prosperous, you shall never want a firm friend, or a twenty-pound note.'" End of chapter 9 Chapter Ten of Lady Audley's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Ten. Missing. When Robert Audley awoke, he was surprised to see the fishing-rod lying in the bank, the line trailing idly in the water, and the float bobbing harmlessly up and down in the afternoon sunshine. The young barrister was a long time stretching his arms and legs in various directions to convince himself, by means of such exercise, that he still retained the proper use of those members. Then, with a mighty effort, he contrived to rise from the grass and having deliberately folded his railway rug into a convenient shape for carrying over his shoulder, he strolled away to look for George Tallboys. Once or twice he gave a sleepy shout, scarcely loud enough to scare the birds in the branches above his head, or the trout in the stream at his feet, but receiving no answer, grew tired of the exertion, and dawdled on, yawning as he went, and still looking for George Tallboys. By and by he took out his watch, and was surprised to find that it was a quarter past four. "'Why, the selfish beggar must have gone home to his dinner,' he muttered reflectively. "'And yet that isn't much like him, for he seldom remembers even his meals unless I jog his memory.' Even a good appetite, and the knowledge that his dinner would very likely suffer by this delay, could not quicken Mr. Robert Audley's constitutional dawdle, and by the time he strolled in at the front door of the sun, the clocks were striking five. He so fully expected to find George Tallboys waiting for him in the little sitting-room that the absence of that gentleman seemed to give the apartment a dreary look, and Robert groaned aloud. "'This is lively,' he said. "'A cold dinner, and nobody to eat it with.' The landlord of the Sun came himself to apologize for his ruined dishes. "'As fine a pair of ducks, Mr. Audley, as ever you clapped eyes on, but burnt up to a cinder, along a being kept hot.' "'Never mind the ducks,' Robert said impatiently. "'Where's Mr. Tallboys?' "'He ain't been in, sir, since you went out together this morning.' "'What?' cried Robert. "'Why, in heaven's name, what has the man done with himself?' He walked to the window and looked out upon the broad, white high-road. There was a wagon laden with trusses of hay crawling slowly past, the lazy horses and the lazy wagoner drooping their heads with a weary stoop under the afternoon sunshine. There was a flock of sheep straggling about the road, with a dog running himself into a fever in the endeavour to keep them decently together. There were some bricklayers just released from work, a tinker mending some kettles by the roadside. There was a dog-cart dashing down the road, carrying the master of the Audley hounds to his seven o'clock dinner. There were a dozen common village sights and sounds that mixed themselves up into a cheerful bustle and confusion. But there was no George Tallboys. "'Of all the extraordinary things that ever happened to me in the whole course of my life,' said Mr. Robert Audley, "'this is the most miraculous.' The landlord, still in attendance, opened his eyes as Robert made this remark. What could there be extraordinary in the simple fact of a gentleman being late for his dinner? 
I shall go and look for him," said Robert, snatching up his hat and walking straight out of the house. But the question was where to look for him. He certainly was not by the trout stream, so it was no good going back there in search of him. Robert was standing before the inn, deliberating on what was best to be done, when the landlord came out after him. "'I forgot to tell you, Mr. Audley, as how your uncle called here five minutes after you was gone, and left a message, asking of you and the other gentlemen to go down to dinner at the court.' "'Then I shouldn't wonder,' said Robert, "'if George Tallboys has gone down to the court to call upon my uncle. It isn't like him, but it's just possible that he has done it.' It was six o'clock when Robert knocked at the door of his uncle's house. He did not ask to see any of the family, but inquired at once for his friend. Yes, the servant told him. Mr. Tallboys had been there at two o'clock, or a little after. And not since? No, not since. Was the man sure that it was at two Mr. Tallboys called? Robert asked. Yes, perfectly sure. He remembered the hour, because it was the servant's dinner hour, and he had left the table to open the door to Mr. Tallboys. Why, what can have become of the man? thought Robert, as he turned his back upon the court. From two till six, four good hours, and no signs of him. If any one had ventured to tell Mr. Robert Audley that he could possibly feel a strong attachment to any creature breathing, that cynical gentleman would have elevated his eyebrows in supreme contempt at the preposterous notion. Yet here he was, flurried and anxious, bewildering his brain by all manner of conjectures about his missing friend, and false to every attribute of his nature, walking fast. "'I haven't walked fast since I was at Eton,' he murmured, as he hurried across one of Sir Michael's meadows in the direction of the village. "'And the worst of it is, that I haven't the most remote idea where I am going.' Here he crossed another meadow, and then, seating himself upon a stile, rested his elbows upon his knees, buried his face in his hands, and set himself seriously to think the matter out. "'I have it,' he said, after a few moments' thought. "'The railway station!' He sprang over the stile, and started off in the direction of the little red-brick building. There was no train expected for another half-hour, and the clerk was taking his tea in an apartment on one side of the office, on the door of which was inscribed in large white letters, PRIVATE. But Mr. Audley was too much occupied with the one idea of looking for his friend to pay any attention to this warning. He strode at once to the door, and rattling his cane against it, brought the clerk out of his sanctum in a perspiration from hot tea, and with his mouth full of bread and butter. "'Do you remember the gentleman that came down to Audley with me, Smithers?' asked Robert. "'Well, to tell you the real truth, Mr. Audley, I can't say that I do. You came by the four o'clock, if you remember, and there's always a good many passengers by that train.' "'You don't remember him, then?' "'Not to my knowledge, sir.' "'Ah, oh, that's provoking!' I want to know, Smithers, whether he has taken a ticket for London since two o'clock to-day. He's a tall, broad-chested young fellow, with a big brown beard. You couldn't well mistake him. There was four or five gentlemen as took tickets for the three-thirty up, said the clerk, rather vaguely, casting an anxious glance over his shoulder at his wife, who looked by no means pleased at this interruption to the harmony of the tea-table. Four or five gentlemen! But did either of them answer to the description of my friend? "'Well, I think one of them had a beard, sir.' "'A dark brown beard?' "'Well, I don't know, but it was brownish-like. "'Was he dressed in grey? "'I believe it was grey. "'A great many gents wear grey. 
He asked for the ticket sharp and short-like, and when he'd got it, walked straight out onto the platform, whistling. "'That's George,' said Robert. "'Thank you, Smithers. I needn't trouble you any more. It's as clear as daylight,' he muttered as he left the station. "'He's got one of his gloomy fits on him, and he's gone back to London without saying a word about it. I'll leave Audley myself to-morrow morning. And for to-night? Why, I may as well go down to the court and make the acquaintance of my uncle's young wife. They don't dine till seven. If I get back across the fields, I shall be in time. Bob, otherwise Robert Audley, this sort of thing will never do. You are falling over head and ears in love with your aunt. End of chapter 10《Chapter Eleven of Lady Audley's Secret》This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Eleven The Mark Upon My Lady's Wrist. Robert found Sir Michael and Lady Audley in the drawing room. My lady was sitting on a music-stool before the grand piano, turning over the leaves of some new music. She twirled upon the revolving seat, making a rustling with her silk flounces, as Mr. Robert Audley's name was announced. Then, leaving the piano, she made her nephew a pretty, mock-ceremonious curtsey. "'Thank you so much for the sables,' she said, holding out her little fingers, all glittering and twinkling with the diamonds she wore upon them. "'Thank you for those beautiful sables. How good it was of you to get them for me!" Robert had almost forgotten the commission he had executed for Lady Audley during his Russian expedition. His mind was so full of George Tallboys that he only acknowledged my lady's gratitude by a bow. "'Would you believe it, Sir Michael?' he said. "'That foolish chum of mine has gone back to London, leaving me in the lurch.' "'Mr. George Tallboys returned to town!' exclaimed my lady, lifting her eyebrows. "'What a dreadful catastrophe!' said Alicia, maliciously, since Pythias, in the person of Mr. Robert Audley, cannot exist for half an hour without Damon, commonly known as George Tallboys. "'He's a very good fellow,' Robert said stoutly. "'And to tell the honest truth, I'm rather uneasy about him.' "'Uneasy about him?' My lady was quite anxious to know why Robert was uneasy about his friend. "'I'll tell you why, Lady Audley,' answered the young barrister. George had a bitter blow a year ago in the death of his wife. He has never got over that trouble. He takes life pretty quietly—almost as quietly as I do—but he often talks very strangely, and I sometimes think that one day this grief will get the better of him, and he will do something rash." Mr. Robert Audley spoke vaguely, but all three of his listeners knew that the something rash to which he alluded was that one deed for which there is no repentance. There was a brief pause during which Lady Audley arranged her yellow ringlets by the aid of the glass over the console-table opposite to her. "'Dear me,' she said, "'this is very strange. I did not think men were capable of these deep and lasting affections. I thought that one pretty face was as good as another pretty face to them, and that when number one with blue eyes and fair hair died, they had only to look out for number two with dark eyes and black hair by way of variety.' George Tallboys is not one of those men. I firmly believe that his wife's death broke his heart." "'How sad!' murmured Lady Audley. "'It seems almost cruel of Mrs. Tallboys to die and grieve her poor husband so much.' 
Alicia was right. She is childish," thought Robert, as he looked at his aunt's pretty face. My lady was very charming at the dinner-table. She professed the most bewitching incapacity for carving the pheasant set before her, and called Robert to her assistance. "'I could carve a leg of mutton at Mr. Dawson's,' she said, laughing. "'But a leg of mutton is so easy, and then I used to stand up.' Sir Michael watched the impression my lady made upon his nephew with a proud delight in her beauty and fascination. "'I am so glad to see my poor little woman in her usual good spirits once more,' he said. She was very downhearted yesterday at a disappointment she met with in London. A disappointment? Yes, Mr. Audley, a very cruel one, answered my lady. I received the other morning a telegraphic message from my dear old friend and schoolmistress, telling me that she was dying, and that if I wanted to see her again I must hasten to her immediately. The telegraphic dispatch contained no address, and of course from that very circumstance, I imagined that she must be living in the house in which I left her three years ago. Sir Michael and I hurried up to town immediately, and drove straight to the old address. The house was occupied by strange people, who could give me no tidings of my friend. It is in a retired place, where there are very few tradespeople about. Sir Michael made inquiries at the few shops there are, but, after taking an immense deal of trouble, could discover nothing whatever likely to lead to the information we wanted. I have no friends in London, and had therefore no one to assist me except my dear, generous husband, who did all in his power but in vain to find my friend's new residence." "'It was very foolish not to send the address in the telegraphic message,' said Robert. "'When people are dying, it is not so easy to think of all these things,' murmured my lady, looking reproachfully at Mr. Audley with her soft blue eyes. In spite of Lady Audley's fascination, and in spite of Robert's very unqualified admiration of her, the barrister could not overcome a vague feeling of uneasiness on this quiet September evening. As he sat in the deep embrasure of a mullioned window, talking to my lady, his mind wandered away to shady fig-tree court, and he thought of poor George Tallboys, smoking his solitary cigar in the room with the birds and canaries. "'I wish I'd never felt any friendliness for the fellow,' he thought. I feel like a man who has an only son whose life has gone wrong with him. I wish to heaven I could give him back his wife, and send him down to Ventnor to finish his days in peace." Still my lady's pretty musical prattle ran on as merrily and continuously as the babble in some brook, and still Robert's thoughts wandered, in spite of himself, to George Tallboys. He thought of him hurrying down to Southampton by the mail-train to see his boy. He thought of him as he had often seen him, spelling over the shipping advertisements in the Times, looking for a vessel to take him back to Australia. Once he thought of him with a shudder, lying cold and stiff at the bottom of some shallow stream, with his dead face turned toward the darkening sky. Lady Audley noticed his abstraction, and asked him what he was thinking of. "'George Tallboys,' he answered abruptly. She gave a little nervous shudder. "'Upon my word!' she said. You make me quite uncomfortable by the way in which you talk of Mr. Tallboys. One would think that something extraordinary had happened to him. God forbid! But I cannot help feeling uneasy about him." Later in the evening Sir Michael asked for some music, and my lady went to the piano. Robert Audley strolled after her to the instrument to turn over the leaves of her music, but she played from memory, and he was spared the trouble his gallantry would have imposed upon him. He carried a pair of lighted candles to the piano, 
and arranged them conveniently for the pretty musician. She struck a few chords, and then wandered into a pensive sonata of Beethoven's. It was one of the many paradoxes of her character, that love of sombre and melancholy melodies, so opposite to her gay nature. Robert Audley lingered by her side, and as he had no occupation in turning over the leaves of her music, he amused himself by watching her jewelled white hands gliding softly over the keys, with the lace sleeves dropping away from her graceful arched wrists. He looked at her pretty fingers one by one, this one glittering with a ruby heart, that encircled by an emerald serpent, and about them all a starry glitter of diamonds. From the fingers his eyes wandered to the rounded wrists, the broad, flat, gold bracelet upon her right wrist dropped over her hand as she executed a rapid passage. She stopped abruptly to rearrange it, but before she could do so Robert Audley noticed a bruise upon her delicate skin. "'You have hurt your arm, Lady Audley,' he exclaimed. She hastily replaced the bracelet. "'It is nothing,' she said. "'I am unfortunate in having a skin which the slightest touch bruises.' She went on playing, but Sir Michael came across the room to look into the matter of the bruise upon his wife's pretty wrist. "'What is it, Lucy?' he asked. "'And how did it happen?' "'How foolish you all are to trouble yourselves about anything so absurd,' said Lady Audley, laughing. "'I am rather absent in mind, and amused myself a few days ago by tying a piece of ribbon around my arm so tightly that it left a bruise when I removed it.' "'Hm,' thought Robert. My lady tells little childish white lies. The bruise is of a more recent date than a few days ago. The skin has only just begun to change color. Sir Michael took the slender wrist in his strong hand. "'Hold the candle, Robert,' he said, "'and let us look at this poor little arm.' It was not one bruise, but four slender purple marks, such as might have been made by the four fingers of a powerful hand, that had grasped the delicate wrist a shade too roughly. A narrow ribbon bound tightly might have left some such marks, it is true, and my lady protested once more that, to the best of her recollection, that must have been how they were made. Across one of the faint purple marks there was a darker tinge, as if a ring worn on one of those strong and cruel fingers had been ground into the tender flesh. "'I am sure my lady must tell white lies,' thought Robert, "'for I can't believe the story of the ribbon.' He wished his relations good-night and good-bye at about half-past ten o'clock, he should run up to London by the first train to look for George in Figtree Court. "'If I don't find him there, I shall go to Southampton,' he said. "'And if I don't find him there—' "'What then?' asked my lady. "'I shall think that something strange has happened.' Robert Audley felt very low-spirited as he walked slowly home between the shadowy meadows more low-spirited still when he re-entered the sitting-room at the Sun Inn, where he and George had lounged together, staring out of the window and smoking their cigars. "'To think,' he said meditatively, "'that it is possible to care so much for a fellow. But come what may, I'll go up to town after him the first thing to-morrow morning, and sooner than be balked in finding him, I'll go to the very end of the world.' With Mr. Audley's lymphatic nature, Determination was so much the exception rather than the rule, that when he did for once in his life resolve upon any course of action, he had a certain dogged, iron-like obstinacy that pushed him on to the fulfilment of his purpose. The lazy bent of his mind, which prevented him from thinking of half a dozen things at a time, and not thinking thoroughly of any one of them, as is the manner of your more energetic people, 
made him remarkably clear-sighted upon any point to which he ever gave his serious attention. Indeed, after all, those solemn benchers laughed at him, and rising barristers shrugged their shoulders under rustling silk gowns. When people spoke of Robert Audley, I doubt if, had he ever taken the trouble to get a brief, he might not have rather surprised the magnates who underrated his abilities. End of chapter 11 Chapter 12 of Lady Audley's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 12 Still Missing. The September sunlight sparkled upon the fountain in the Temple Gardens when Robert Audley returned to Fig Tree Court early the following morning. He found the canary singing in the pretty little room in which George had slept, but the apartment was in the same prim order in which the laundress had arranged it after the departure of the two young men—not a chair displaced, or so much as the lid of a cigar-box lifted, to bespeak the presence of George Tallboys. With a last lingering hope, he searched upon the mantelpieces and tables of his rooms, on the chance of finding some letter left by George. "'He may have slept here last night, and started for Southampton early this morning,' he thought. "'Mrs. Maloney has been here, very likely, to make everything tidy after him.' But as he sat looking lazily around the room, now and then whistling to his delighted canaries, a slipshod foot upon the staircase without bespoke the advent of that very Mrs. Maloney who waited upon the two young men. No, Mr. Tallboys had not come home. She had looked in as early as six o'clock that morning, and found the chambers empty. "'Had anything happened to the poor dear gentleman?' she asked, seeing Robert Audley's pale face. He turned around upon her quite savagely at this question. "'Happened to him? What should happen to him? They had only parted at two o'clock the day before.' Mrs. Maloney would have related to him the history of a poor dear young engine-driver, who had once lodged with her, and who went out, after eating a hearty dinner, in the best of spirits, to meet with his death from the concussion of an express in a luggage-train. But Robert put on his hat again, and walked straight out of the house before the honest Irishwoman could begin her pitiful story. It was growing dusk when he reached Southampton. He knew his way to the poor little terrace of houses, in a full street leading down to the water, where George's father-in-law lived. Little Georgie was playing at the open parlour window as the young man walked down the street. Perhaps it was this fact, and the dull and silent aspect of the house, which filled Robert Audley's mind with a vague conviction that the man he came to look for was not there. The old man himself opened the door, and the child peeped out of the parlour to see the strange gentleman. He was a handsome boy, with his father's brown eyes and dark waving hair, and with some latent expression which was not his father's, and which pervaded his whole face, so that although each feature of the child resembled the same feature in George Tallboy's, the boy was not actually like him. Mr. Malden was delighted to see Robert Audley. He remembered having had the pleasure of meeting him at Ventnor, on the melancholy occasion of—he wiped his watery old eyes by way of conclusion to the sentence—would Mr. Audley walk in? Robert strode into the parlour. The furniture was shabby and dingy, and the place reeked with the smell of stale tobacco and brandy and water. The boy's broken playthings, 
and the old man's broken clay pipes and torn brandy-and-water-stained newspapers were scattered upon the dirty carpet. Little Georgie crept toward the visitor, watching him furtively out of his big, brown eyes. Robert took the boy on his knee, and gave him his watch-chain to play with while he talked to the old man. "'I need scarcely ask the question that I come to ask,' he said. "'I was in hopes I should have found your son-in-law here.' "'What? You knew that he was coming to Southampton?' "'Knew that he was coming!' cried Robert, brightening up. "'He is here, then?' "'No, he is not here now, but he has been here.' "'When?' "'Late last night he came by the mail.' "'And left again immediately?' "'He stayed little better than an hour.' "'Good heaven!' said Robert. "'What useless anxiety that man has given me! What can be the meaning of all this?' "'You knew nothing of his intention, then?' "'Of what intention?' I mean of his determination to go to Australia. I know that it was always in his mind more or less, but not more just now than usual. He sails to-night from Liverpool. He came here at one o'clock this morning to have a look at the boy, he said, before he left England, perhaps never to return. He told me he was sick of the world, and that the rough life out there was the only thing to suit him. He stayed an hour, kissed the boy without awaking him and left Southampton by the mail that starts at a quarter-past two. "'What can be the meaning of all this?' said Robert. "'What could be his motive for leaving England in this manner without a word to me, his most intimate friend, without even a change of clothes? For he has left everything at my chambers. It is the most extraordinary proceeding.' The old man looked very grave. "'Do you know, Mr. Audley,' he said, tapping his forehead significantly, I sometimes fancy that Helen's death had a strange effect upon poor George. Pshaw! cried Robert contemptuously. He felt the blow most cruelly, but his brain was as sound as yours or mine. Perhaps he will write to you from Liverpool, said George's father-in-law. He seemed anxious to smooth over any indignation that Robert might feel at his friend's conduct. He ought, said Robert gravely, for we've been good friends from the days when we were together at Eton. It isn't kind of George Tallboys to treat me like this." But even at the moment that he uttered the reproach, a strange thrill of remorse shot through his heart. "'It isn't like him,' he said. "'It isn't like George Tallboys.' Little Georgie caught at the sound. "'That's my name,' he said. "'And my papa's name, the big gentleman's name.' "'Yes, little Georgie, and your papa came last night and kissed you in your sleep. Do you remember?' "'No,' said the boy, shaking his curly little head. "'You must have been very fast asleep, little Georgie, not to see poor Papa.' The child did not answer, but presently, fixing his eyes upon Robert's face, he said abruptly, "'Where's the pretty lady?' "'What pretty lady?' "'The pretty lady that used to come a long while ago.' "'He means his poor mamma," said the old man. "'No!' cried the boy resolutely. Not Mamma. Mamma was always crying. I didn't like Mamma. Hush, little Georgie. But I didn't, and she didn't like me. She was always crying. I mean the pretty lady, the lady that was dressed so fine and that gave me my gold watch. He means the wife of my old captain, an excellent creature who took a great fancy to Georgie and gave him some handsome presents. Where's my gold watch? Let me show the gentleman my gold watch, cried Georgie. It's gone to be clean, Georgie, answered his grandfather. It's always going to be cleaned, 
said the boy. "'The watch is perfectly safe, I assure you, Mr. Audley,' murmured the old man apologetically, and taking out a pawnbroker's duplicate, he handed it to Robert. It was made out in the name of Captain Mortimer. Watch, set with diamonds, eleven pounds. "'I'm often hard-pressed for a few shillings, Mr. Audley,' said the old man. "'My son-in-law has been very liberal to me, but there are others. There are others, Mr. Audley, and—and I've not been treated well.' He wiped away some genuine tears as he said this in a pitiful, crying voice. "'Come, Georgie, it's time the brave little man was in bed. Come along with Grandpa.' "'Excuse me for a quarter of an hour, Mr. Audley.' The boy went very willingly. At the door of the room the old man looked back at his visitor, and said in the same peevish voice, "'This is a poor place for me to pass my declining years in, Mr. Audley. I've made many sacrifices, and I make them still, but I've not been treated well.' Left alone in the dusky little sitting-room, Robert Audley folded his arms and sat absently staring at the floor. George was gone, then. He might receive some letter of explanation, perhaps, when he returned to London, but the chances were that he would never see his old friend again. "'And to think that I should care so much for the fellow,' he said, lifting his eyebrows to the centre of his forehead. "'The place smells of stale tobacco like a tap-room,' he muttered presently. "'There could be no harm in my smoking a cigar here.' He took one from the case in his pocket. There was a spark of fire in the little grate, and he looked about for something to light his cigar with. A twisted piece of paper lay half-burned upon the hearth-rug. He picked it up and unfolded it, in order to get a better pipe-light by folding it the other way of the paper. As he did so, absently glancing at the pencilled writing upon the fragment of thin paper, a portion of a name caught his eye—a portion of the name that was most in his thoughts. He took the scrap of paper to the window, and examined it by the declining light. It was part of a telegraphic dispatch. The upper portion had been burnt away but the more important part, the greater part of the message itself, remained. All boys came to—last night, and left by the mail for London, on his way to Liverpool, whence he was to sail for Sydney. The date and the name and the address of the sender and the message had been burnt with the heading. Robert Audley's face blanched to a deathly whiteness. He carefully folded the scrap of paper, and placed it between the leaves of his pocket-book. "'My God!' he said. "'What is the meaning of this? I shall go to Liverpool to-night and make inquiries there.'" End of chapter 12 Chapter 13 of Lady Audley's Secret This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 13 Troubled Dreams. Robert Audley left Southampton by the mail, and let himself into his chambers just as the dawn was creeping cold and grey into the solitary rooms and the canaries were beginning to rustle their feathers feebly in the early morning. There were several letters in the box behind the door, but there was none from George Tallboys. The young barrister was worn out by a long day spent in hurrying from place to place. 
The usual lazy monotony of his life had been broken, as it had never been broken before in eight-and-twenty tranquil, easy-going years. His mind was beginning to grow confused upon the point of time. It seemed to him months since he had lost sight of George Tallboys. It was so difficult to believe that it was less than forty-eight hours ago that the young man had left him asleep under the willows by the trout-stream. His eyes were painfully weary for want of sleep. He searched about the room for some time, looking in all sorts of impossible places for a letter from George Tallboys, and then threw himself dressed upon his friend's bed, in the room with the canaries and geraniums. "'I shall wait for to-morrow morning's post,' he said. "'And if that brings no letter from George, I shall start for Liverpool without a moment's delay.' He was thoroughly exhausted, and fell into a heavy sleep, a sleep which was profound without being in any way refreshing, for he was tormented all the time by disagreeable dreams, dreams which were painful, not from any horror in themselves, but from a vague and wearying sense of their confusion and absurdity. At one time he was pursuing strange people, and entering strange houses, in the endeavour to unravel the mystery of the telegraphic dispatch. At another time he was in the churchyard at Ventnor, gazing at the headstone George had ordered for the grave of his dead wife. Once in the long rambling mystery of these dreams, he went to the grave, and found this headstone gone, and on remonstrating with the stonemason, was told that the man had a reason for removing the inscription a reason that Robert would some day learn. In another dream, he saw the grave of Helen Tallboys open, and while he waited, with the cold horror lifting up his hair to see the dead woman rise and stand before him, with her stiff, charnel-house drapery clinging about her rigid limbs, his uncle's wife tripped gaily out of the open grave, dressed in the crimson velvet robes in which the artist had painted her, and with her ringlets flashing like red gold in the unearthly light that shone about her. But into all these dreams the places he had last been in, and the people with whom he had last been concerned, were dimly interwoven, sometimes his uncle, sometimes Alicia, oftenest of all my lady, the trout-stream in Essex, the lime-walk at the court. Once he was walking in the black shadows of this long avenue, with Lady Audley hanging on his arm, when suddenly they heard a great knocking in the distance, and his uncle's wife wound her slender arms around him, crying out that it was the day of judgment, and that all wicked secrets must now be told. Looking at her as she shrieked this in his ear, he saw that her face had grown ghastly white, and that her beautiful golden ringlets were changing into serpents, and slowly creeping down her fair neck. He started from his dream to find that there was some one really knocking at the outer door of his chambers. It was a dreary, wet morning, the rain beating against the windows, and the canaries twittering dismally to each other, complaining, perhaps, of the bad weather. Robert could not tell how long the person had been knocking. He had mixed the sound with his dreams, and when he woke he was only half-conscious of other things. "'It's that stupid Mrs. Maloney, I dare say,' he muttered. "'She may knock again, for all I care. Why can't she use her duplicate key, instead of dragging a man out of bed when he's half-dead with fatigue?' The person, whoever it was, did knock again, and then desisted, apparently tired out. But about a minute afterward a key turned in the door. "'She had her key with her all the time, then,' said Robert. "'I'm very glad I didn't get up.' The door between the sitting-room and bedroom was half open, and he could see the laundress bustling about, dusting the furniture and rearranging things that had never been disarranged. "'Is that you, Mrs. Maloney?' he asked. 
"'Yes, sir.' "'Then why, in goodness' name, did you make that row at the door when you had a key with you all the time?' "'A row at the door, sir?' "'Yes, that infernal knocking.' "'Sure, I never knocked, Mr. Audley, but walked straight in with my key.' "'Then who did knock? There's been some one kicking up a row at that door for a quarter of an hour, I should think. You must have met him going downstairs.' "'But I'm rather late this morning, sir, for I've been in Mr. Martin's rooms first, and I've come straight from the floor above.' "'Then you didn't see any one at the door, or on the stairs?' "'Not a mortal soul, sir.' "'Was ever anything so provoking,' said Robert, "'to think that I should have let this person go away without ascertaining who he was or what he wanted. How do I know that it was not someone with a message or a letter from George Tallboys?' "'Sure, if it was, sir, he'll come again,' said Mrs. Maloney, soothingly. "'Yes, of course. If it was anything of consequence, he'll come again,' muttered Robert. The fact was that from the moment of finding the telegraphic message at Southampton, all hope of hearing of George had faded out of his mind. He felt that there was some mystery involved in the disappearance of his friend, some treachery toward himself or toward George. What if the young man's greedy old father-in-law had tried to separate them— on account of the monetary trust lodged in Robert Audley's hands? Or what if, since even in these civilized days all kinds of unsuspected horrors are constantly committed, what if the old man had decoyed George down to Southampton, and made away with him in order to get possession of that twenty thousand pounds left in Robert's custody for little Georgie's use? But neither of these suppositions explained the telegraphic message, and it was the telegraphic message which had filled Robert's mind with a vague sense of alarm. The postman brought no letter from George Tallboys, and the person who had knocked at the door of the chambers did not return between seven and nine o'clock. So Robert Audley left Figtree Court once more in search of his friend. This time he told the cabman to drive to the Euston station, and in twenty minutes he was on the platform, making inquiries about the trains. The Liverpool Express had started half an hour before he reached the station, and he had to wait an hour and a quarter for a slow train to take him to his destination. Robert Audley chafed cruelly at this delay. Half a dozen vessels might sail for Australia while he roamed up and down the long platform, tumbling over trucks and porters and swearing at his ill luck. He bought the Times newspaper, and looked instinctively at the second column, with a morbid interest in the advertisements of people missing—sons, brothers, and husbands who had left their homes, never to return or to be heard of more. There was one advertisement of a young man found drowned somewhere on the Lambeth shore. What if that should have been George's fate? No, the telegraphic message involved his father-in-law and the fact of his disappearance, and every speculation about him must start from that point. It was eight o'clock in the evening when Robert got into Liverpool, too late for anything except to make inquiries as to what vessel had sailed within the last two days for the Antipodes. An emigrant ship had sailed at four o'clock that afternoon— the Victoria Regia, bound for Melbourne. The result of his inquiries amounted to this. If he wanted to find out who had sailed in the Victoria Regia, he must wait until the next morning, and apply for information of that vessel. Robert Audley was at the office at nine o'clock the next morning, and was the first person after the clerks who entered it. He met with every civility from the clerk to whom he applied. The young man referred to his books, and running his pen down the list of passengers who had sailed in the Victoria Regia, told Robert that there was no one among them of the name of Tallboys. He pushed his inquiries further. Had any of the passengers entered their names within a short time of the vessel's sailing? 
One of the other clerks looked up from his desk as Robert asked this question. Yes, he said. He remembered a young man's coming into the office at half-past three o'clock in the afternoon, and paying his passage money. His name was the last on the list. Thomas Brown. Robert Audley shrugged his shoulders. There could have been no possible reason for George's taking a feigned name. He asked the clerk who had last spoken if he could remember the appearance of this Mr. Thomas Brown. No, the office was crowded at that time. People were running in and out, and he had not taken any particular notice of this last passenger. Robert thanked them for their civility, and wished them good morning. As he was leaving the office, one of the young men called after him. "'Oh, by the by, sir,' he said, "'I remember one thing about this Mr. Thomas Brown. His arm was in a sling.' There was nothing more for Robert Audley to do but to return to town. He re-entered his chambers at six o'clock that evening, thoroughly worn out once more with his useless search. Mrs. Maloney brought him his dinner and a pint of wine from a tavern in the Strand. The evening was raw and chilly, and the laundress had lighted a good fire in the sitting-room grate. After eating about half a mutton-chop, Robert sat with his wine untasted upon the table before him, smoking cigars and staring into the blaze. "'George Tallboys never sailed for Australia,' he said, after long and painful reflection. "'If he is alive, he is still in England. And if he is dead—' His body is hidden in some corner of England." He sat for hours smoking and thinking, trouble and gloomy thoughts leaving a dark shadow upon his moody face, which neither the brilliant light of the gas nor the red blaze of the fire could dispel. Very late in the evening he rose from his chair, pushed away the table, wheeled his desk over to the fireplace, took out a sheet of fool's cap, and dipped a pen in the ink. But after doing this he paused, leaned his forehead upon his hand, and once more relapsed into thought. "'I shall draw up a record of all that has occurred between our going down to Essex and to-night, beginning at the very beginning.' He drew up this record in short, detached sentences, which he numbered as he wrote. It ran thus. "'Journal of facts connected with the disappearance of George Tallboys, inclusive of facts which have no apparent relation to that circumstance.' In spite of the troubled state of his mind, he was rather inclined to be proud of the official appearance of this heading. He sat for some time looking at it with affection, and with the feather of his pen in his mouth. "'Upon my word,' he said, "'I begin to think that I ought to have pursued my profession, instead of dawdling my life away as I have done.' He smoked half a cigar before he had got his thoughts in proper train, and then began to write. One, I write to Alicia, proposing to take George down to the court. 2. Alicia writes, objecting to the visit, on the part of Lady Audley. 3. We go to Essex in spite of that objection. I see my lady. My lady refuses to be introduced to George on that particular evening on the score of fatigue. 4. Sir Michael invites George and me to dinner for the following evening. 5. My lady receives a telegraphic dispatch the next morning which summons her to London. 6. Alicia shows me a letter from my lady— in which she requests to be told when I and my friend Mr. Tallboys mean to leave Essex. To this letter is subjoined a postscript, reiterating the above request. 7. We call at the court, and ask to see the house. My lady's apartments are locked. 8. We get at the aforesaid apartments by means of a secret passage, the existence of which is unknown to my lady. In one of the rooms we find her portrait. 
9. George is frightened at the storm. His conduct is exceedingly strange for the rest of the evening. 10. George quite himself again the following morning. I propose leaving Audley Court immediately. He prefers remaining till the evening. 11. We go out fishing. George leaves me to go to the court. 12. The last positive information I can obtain of him in Essex is at the court, where the servant says he thinks Mr. Tallboys told him he would go and look for my lady in the grounds. 13. I receive information about him at the station, which may or may not be correct. 14. I hear of him positively once more at Southampton, where, according to his father-in-law, he had been for an hour on the previous night. 15. The Telegraphic Message When Robert Audley had completed this brief record, which he drew up with great deliberation, and with frequent pauses for reflection, alterations, and erasures, he sat for a long time contemplating the written page. At last he read it carefully over, stopping at some of the numbered paragraphs, and marking some of them with a pencil-cross. Then he folded the sheet of foolscap, went over to a cabinet on the opposite side of the room, unlocked it, and placed the paper in that very pigeonhole into which he had thrust Alicia's letter, the pigeonhole marked important. Having done this, he returned to his easy-chair by the fire, pushed away his desk, and lighted a cigar. "'It's as dark as midnight from first to last,' he said, "'and the clue to the mystery must be found either at Southampton or in Essex. Be it how it may, my mind is made up. I shall first go to Audley Court, and look for George Tallboys in a narrow radius. End of chapter 13《Chapter Fourteen of Lady Audley's Secret This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Fourteen Phoebe's Suitor. Mr. George Tallboys, any person who has met this gentleman since the seventh inst or who possesses any information respecting him subsequent to that date, will be liberally rewarded on communicating with A.Z., 14 Chancery Lane. Sir Michael Audley read the above advertisement in the second column of the Times, as he sat at breakfast with my lady and Alicia, two or three days after Robert's return to town. "'Robert's friend has not yet been heard of, then,' said the baronet, after reading the advertisement to his wife and daughter. "'As for that—' replied my lady. I cannot help wondering that any one can be silly enough to advertise for him. The young man was evidently of a restless, roving disposition, a sort of Bamfield Moore Carew of modern life, whom no attraction could ever keep in one spot. Though the advertisement appeared three successive times, the party at the court attached very little importance to Mr. Tallboy's disappearance, and after this one occasion his name was never again mentioned by either Sir Michael my lady, or Alicia. Alicia Audley and her pretty stepmother were by no means any better friends after that quiet evening on which the young barrister had dined at the court. "'She is a vain, frivolous, heartless little coquette,' said Alicia, addressing herself to her Newfoundland dog Caesar, who was the sole recipient of the young lady's confidences. "'She is a practised and consummate flirt, Caesar. 
and not contented with setting her yellow ringlets and her silly giggle at half the men in Essex, she must needs make that stupid cousin of mine dance attendance upon her. I haven't common patience with her." In proof of which last assertion, Miss Alice Audley treated her stepmother with such very palpable impertinence that Sir Michael felt himself called upon to remonstrate with his only daughter. "'The poor little woman is very sensitive, you know, Alicia,' the baronet said gravely, "'and she feels your conduct most acutely.' "'I don't believe it a bit, Papa,' answered Alicia stoutly. "'You think her sensitive because she has soft little white hands, and big blue eyes with long lashes, and all manner of affected fantastical ways which you stupid men call fascinating. Sensitive! Why, I've seen her do cruel things with those slender white fingers, and laugh at the pain she inflicted.' "'I'm very sorry, Papa,' she added, softened a little by her father's look of distress though she has come between us, and robbed poor Alicia of the love of that dear generous heart, I wish I could like her for your sake. But I can't, I can't, and no more can Caesar. She came up to him once with her red lips apart, and her little white teeth glistening between them, and stroked his great head with her soft hand. But if I had not had hold of his collar, he would have flown at her throat and strangled her. She may bewitch every man in Essex, but she'd never make friends with my dog." "'Your dog shall be shot,' answered Sir Michael angrily, if his vicious temper ever endangers Lucy." The Newfoundland rolled his eyes slowly round in the direction of the speaker, as if he understood every word that had been said. Lady Audley happened to enter the room at this very moment, and the animal cowered down by the side of his mistress with a suppressed growl. There was something in the manner of the dog which was, if anything, more indicative of terror than of fury. Incredible as it appears that Caesar should be frightened by so fragile a creature as Lucy Audley. Amicable as was my lady's nature, she could not live long at the court without discovering Alicia's dislike to her. She never alluded to it but once. Then, shrugging her graceful white shoulders, she said with a sigh, "'It seems very hard that you cannot love me, Alicia, for I have never been used to make enemies. But since it seems that it must be so, I cannot help it. If we cannot be friends, let us be neutral. You won't try to injure me." "'Injure you!' exclaimed Alicia. "'How should I injure you?' "'You'll not try to deprive me of your father's affection. I may not be as amiable as you are, my lady, and I may not have the same sweet smiles and pretty words for every stranger I meet. But I am not capable of a contemptible meanness. And even if I were, I think you are so secure of my father's love, that nothing but your own act will ever deprive you of it." "'What a severe creature you are, Alicia,' said my lady, making a little grimace. "'I suppose you mean to infer by all that that I'm deceitful. Why, I can't help smiling at people, and speaking prettily to them. I know I'm no better than the rest of the world, but I can't help it if I'm pleasanter. It's constitutional." Alicia, having thus entirely shut the door upon all intimacy between Lady Audley and herself, and Sir Michael being chiefly occupied in agricultural pursuits and manly sports which kept him away from home, it was perhaps natural that my lady, being of an eminently social disposition, should find herself thrown a good deal upon her white eyelashed maid for society. Phoebe Marks was exactly the sort of a girl who was generally promoted from the post of lady's maid to that of companion. 
she had just sufficient education to enable her to understand her mistress, when Lucy chose to allow herself to run riot in a species of intellectual tarantella, in which her tongue went mad to the sound of its own rattle, as the Spanish dancer at the noise of his castanets. Phoebe knew enough of the French language to be able to dip into the yellow paper-covered novels which my lady ordered from the Burlington Arcade, and to discourse with her mistress upon the questionable subjects of these romances. The likeness which the lady's maid bore to Lucy Audley was, perhaps, a point of sympathy between the two women. It was not to be called a striking likeness. A stranger might have seen them both together, and yet have failed to remark it. But there were certain dim and shadowy lights, in which, meeting Phoebe Marks gliding softly through the dark oak passages of the court, or under the shrouded avenues in the garden, you might have easily mistaken her for my lady. Sharp October winds were sweeping the leaves from the limes in the long avenue, and driving them in withered heaps with a ghostly rustling noise along the dry gravel walks. The old well must have been half choked up with the leaves that drifted about it, and whirled in eddying circles into its black, broken mouth. On the still bosom of the fish-pond, the same withered leaves slowly rotted away, mixing themselves with the tangled weeds that discoloured the surface of the water. All the gardeners Sir Michael could employ could not keep the impress of Autumn's destroying hand from the grounds about the court. "'How I hate this desolate month!' my lady said, as she walked about the garden shivering beneath her sable mantle. "'Everything dropping to ruin and decay, and the cold flicker of the sun lighting up the ugliness of the earth, as the glare of gas-lamps lights the wrinkles of an old woman. "'Shall I ever grow old, Phoebe?' Will my hair ever drop off as the leaves are falling from those trees, and leave me wan and bare like them? What is to become of me when I grow old?" She shivered at the thought of this more than she had done at the cold wintry breeze, and muffling herself closely in her fur, walked so fast that her maid had some difficulty in keeping up with her. "'Do you remember, Phoebe?' she said presently, relaxing her pace. "'Do you remember that French story we read?' the story of a beautiful woman who had committed some crime—I forget what—in the zenith of her power and loveliness, when all Paris drank to her every night, and when the people ran away from the carriage of the king to flock about hers and get a peep at her face. Do you remember how she kept the secret of what she had done, for nearly half a century, spending her old age in her family chateau, beloved and honoured by all the province, as an uncanonized saint and benefactress to the poor? And how— when her hair was white, and her eyes almost blind with age. The secret was revealed through one of those strange accidents, by which such secrets always are revealed in romances, and she was tried, found guilty, and condemned to be burned alive. The king who had worn her colours was dead and gone. The court of which she had been a star had passed away. Powerful functionaries and great magistrates, who might perhaps have helped her, were mouldering in the graves. Brave young cavaliers who would have died for her, had fallen upon distant battlefields. She had lived to see the age to which she had belonged fade like a dream. And she went to the stake, followed by only a few ignorant country people, who forgot all her bounties, and hooted at her for a wicked sorceress. "'I don't care for such dismal stories, my lady,' said Phoebe Marks, with a shudder. One has no need to read books to give one the horrors in this dull place." Lady Audley shrugged her shoulders and laughed at her maid's candour. "'It is a dull place, Phoebe,' she said, "'though it doesn't do to say so to my dear old husband. 
though I am the wife of one of the most influential men in the county, I don't know that I wasn't nearly as well off at Mr. Dawson's. And yet it's something to wear sables that cost sixty guineas, and have a thousand pounds spent on the decoration of one's apartments. Treated as a companion by her mistress, in the receipt of the most liberal wages, and with perquisites such as perhaps lady's maid had never had before, it was strange that Phoebe Marks should wish to leave her situation, but it was not the less a fact that she was anxious to exchange all the advantages of Audley Court for the very unpromising prospect which awaited her as the wife of her cousin Luke. The young man had contrived in some manner to associate himself with the improved fortunes of his sweetheart. He had never allowed Phoebe any peace, till she had obtained for him, by the aid of my lady's interference, a situation as undergroom of the court. He never rode out with either Alicia or Sir Michael, but on one of the few occasions upon which my lady mounted the pretty little grey thoroughbred reserved for her use, he contrived to attend her in her ride. He saw enough, in the very first half-hour they were out, to discover that, graceful as Lucy Audley might look in her long blue-cloth habit, she was a timid horsewoman, and utterly unable to manage the animal she rode. Lady Audley remonstrated with her maid upon her folly in wishing to marry the uncouth groom. The two women were seated together over the fire in my lady's dressing-room, the grey sky closing in upon the October afternoon, and the black tracery of ivy darkening the casement windows. "'You surely are not in love with the awkward, ugly creature, are you, Phoebe?' asked my lady sharply. The girl was sitting on a low stool at her mistress's feet. She did not answer my lady's question immediately but sat for some time looking vacantly into the red abyss in the hollow fire. Presently she said, rather as if she had been thinking aloud than answering Lucy's question, "'I don't think I can love him. We have been together from children, and I promised, when I was little better than fifteen, that I'd be his wife. I daren't break that promise now. There have been times when I've made up the very sentence I meant to say to him, telling him that I couldn't keep my faith with him.' But the words have died upon my lips, and I've sat looking at him with a choking sensation in my throat that wouldn't let me speak. I daren't refuse to marry him. I've often watched and watched him, as he has sat slicing away at a hedge-stake with his great clasp-knife, till I have thought that it is just such men as he who have decoyed their sweethearts into lonely places, and murdered them for being false to their word. When he was a boy he was always violent and revengeful. I saw him once take up that very knife in a quarrel with his mother. I tell you, my lady, I must marry him. "'You silly girl! You shall do nothing of the kind,' answered Lucy. "'You think he'll murder you, do you? Do you think, then, if murder is in him, you would be any safer as his wife? If you thwarted him or made him jealous, if he wanted to marry another woman or to get hold of some poor pitiful bit of money of yours, couldn't he murder you then?' I tell you, you shan't marry him, Phoebe. In the first place, I hate the man, and in the next place, I can't afford to part with you. We'll give him a few pounds and send him about his business." Phoebe Marks caught my lady's hand in hers, and clasped them convulsively. "'My lady, my good, kind mistress,' she cried vehemently, "'don't try to thwart me in this. Don't ask me to thwart him. I tell you, I must marry him. You don't know what he is. It will be my ruin and the ruin of others if I break my word. I must marry him." "'Very well, then, Phoebe,' answered her mistress. 
I can't oppose you. There must be some secret at the bottom of all this.' "'There is, my lady,' said the girl, with her face turned away from Lucy. "'I shall be very sorry to lose you, but I have promised to stand your friend in all things. What does your cousin mean to do for a living when you are married?' "'He would like to take a public house.' "'Then he shall take a public house, and the sooner he drinks himself to death, the better. Sir Michael dines at a bachelor's party at Major Margrave's this evening, and my stepdaughter is away with her friends at the Grange. You can bring your cousin into the drawing-room after dinner, and I'll tell him what I mean to do for him.' "'You are very good, my lady,' Phoebe answered with a sigh. Lady Audley sat in the glow of firelight and wax candles in the luxurious drawing-room, the amber damask cushions of the sofa contrasting with her dark violet velvet dress, and her rippling hair falling about her neck in a golden haze. Everywhere around her were the evidences of wealth and splendour, while in strange contrast to all this, and to her own beauty, the awkward groom stood rubbing his bullet head as my lady explained to him what she intended to do for her confidential maid. Lucy's promises were very liberal, and she had expected that, uncouth as the man was, he would, in his own rough manner, have expressed his gratitude. To her surprise, he stood staring at the floor without uttering a word in answer to her offer. Phoebe was standing close to his elbow, and seemed distressed at the man's rudeness. "'Tell my lady how thankful you are, Luke,' she said. "'But I'm not so over and above thankful,' answered her lover, savagely. Fifty pound ain't much to start a public. You'll make it a hundred, my lady.' "'I shall do nothing of the kind,' said Lady Audley, her clear blue eyes flashing with indignation. "'And I wonder at your impertinence in asking it.' "'Oh, yes, you will, though,' answered Luke, with quiet insolence that had a hidden meaning. "'You'll make it a hundred, my lady.' Lady Audley rose from her seat, looked the man steadfastly in the face till his determined gaze sunk under hers, then walking straight up to her maid— she said in a high, piercing voice, peculiar to her in moments of intense agitation, "'Phoebe Marks, you have told this man!' The girl fell on her knees at my lady's feet. "'Oh, forgive me! Forgive me!' she cried. "'He forced it from me, or I would never, never have told!' End of chapter 14 Chapter Fifteen of Lady Audley's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Fifteen On the Watch. Upon a lowering morning late in November, with the yellow fog low upon the flat meadows, and the blinded cattle groping their way through the dim obscurity, and blundering stupidly against black and leafless hedges, or stumbling into ditches, undistinguishable in the hazy atmosphere, with the village church looming brown and dingy through the uncertain light, with every winding path and cottage door, every gable end and grey old chimney, every village child and straggling cur seeming strange and weird of aspect in the semi-darkness, Phoebe Marks and her cousin Luke made their way through the churchyard of Audley, and presented themselves before a shivering curate, 
whose surplice hung in damp folds, soddened by the morning mist, and whose temper was not improved by his having waited five minutes for the bride and bridegroom. Luke Marks, dressed in his ill-fitting Sunday clothes, looked by no means handsomer than in his everyday apparel, but Phoebe, arrayed in a rustling silk of delicate grey, that had been worn about half-dozen times by her mistress, looked, as the few spectators of the ceremony remarked, quite the lady. A very dim and shadowy lady, vague of outline and faint of colouring, with eyes, hair, complexion, and dress, all melting into such pale and uncertain shades, that, in the obscure light of the foggy November morning, a superstitious stranger might have mistaken the bride for the ghost of some other bride, dead and buried in the vault below the church. Mr. Luke Marks, the hero of the occasion, thought very little of all this. He had secured the wife of his choice, and the object of his lifelong ambition, a public house. My lady had provided the seventy-five pounds necessary for the purchase of the goodwill and fixtures, with the stock of ales and spirits, of a small inn in the centre of a lonely little village, perched on the summit of a hill, called Mount Stanning. It was not a very pretty house to look at. It had something of a tumble-down, weather-beaten appearance, standing as it did upon high ground, sheltered only by four or five bare and overgrown poplars that had shot up too rapidly for their strength, and had a blighted, forlorn look in consequence. The wind had had its own way with the castle inn, and had sometimes made cruel use of its power. It was the wind that battered and bent the low, thatched roofs of outhouses and stables, till they hung over and lurched forward, as a slouched hat hangs over the low forehead of some village ruffian. It was the wind that shook and rattled the wooden shutters before the narrow casements, till they hung broken and dilapidated upon their rusty hinges. It was the wind that overthrew the pigeon-house, and broke the vane that had been imprudently set up to tell the movements of its mightiness. It was the wind that made light of any little bit of wooden trellis-work, or creeping plant, or tiny balcony, or any modest decoration whatsoever, and tore and scattered it in its scornful fury. It was the wind that left mossy secretions on the discoloured surface of the plaster walls. It was the wind, in short, that shattered and ruined and rent, and trampled upon the tottering pile of buildings, and then flew shrieking off, to riot and glory in its destroying strength. The dispirited proprietor grew tired of his long struggle with this mighty enemy, so the wind was left to work its own will, and the castle inn fell slowly to decay. But for all that it suffered without, it was not the less prosperous within doors. Sturdy drovers stopped to drink at the little bar. Well-to-do farmers spent their evenings and talked politics in the low wainscoted parlour, while their horses munched some suspicious mixture of mouldy hay and tolerable beans in the tumble-down stables. Sometimes even the members of the Audley Hunt stopped to drink and bait their horses at the Castle Inn, while, on one grand and never-to-be-forgotten occasion, a dinner had been ordered by the master of the hounds for some thirty gentlemen, and the proprietor driven nearly mad by the importance of the demand. So Luke Marks, who was by no means troubled with an eye for the beautiful, thought himself very fortunate in becoming the landlord of the Castle Inn, Mount Stanning. A chaise-cart was waiting in the fog to convey the bride and bridegroom to their new home, and a few of the villagers, who had known Phoebe from a child, were lingering around the churchyard gate to bid her good-bye. Her pale eyes were still paler from the tears she had shed, and the red rims which surrounded them. The bridegroom was annoyed at this exhibition of emotion. "'What are you blubbering for, lass?' he said fiercely. 
"'If you didn't want to marry me, you should have told me so. I ain't going to murder you, am I?' The lady's maid shivered as he spoke to her, and dragged her little silk mantle closely around her. "'You're cold in all this here finery,' said Luke, staring at her costly dress with no expression of goodwill. "'Why can't women dress according to their station? You won't have no silk gowns out of my pocket, I can tell you.' He lifted the shivering girl into the chaise, wrapped a rough greatcoat about her, and drove off through the yellow fog, followed by a feeble cheer from two or three urchins clustered around the gate. A new maid was brought from London to replace Phoebe Marks about the person of my lady, a very showy damsel, who wore a black satin gown and rose-coloured ribbons in her cap, and complained bitterly of the dullness of Audley Court. But Christmas brought visitors to the rambling old mansion. A country squire and his fat wife occupied the tapestried chamber. Merry girls scampered up and down the long passages, and young men stared out at the latticed windows, watching for southerly winds and cloudy skies. There was not an empty stall in the roomy old stables. An extempore forge had been set up in the yard for the shoeing of hunters. Yelping dogs made the place noisy with their perpetual clamour. Strange servants herded together on the garret story, and every little casement hidden away under some pointed gable, and every dormer window in the quaint old roof, glimmered upon the winter's night with its separate taper till, coming suddenly upon Audley Court, the benighted stranger, misled by the light and noise and bustle of the place, might have easily fallen into young Marlowe's error, and have mistaken the hospitable mansion for a good old-fashioned inn, such as have faded from this earth since the last mail-coach, and prancing tits took their last melancholy journey to the knacker's yard. Among other visitors, Mr. Robert Audley came down to Essex for the hunting season, with half a dozen French novels, a case of cigars, and three pounds of Turkish tobacco in his portmanteau. The honest young country squires, who talked all breakfast-time of flying Dutchman fillies and Voltigeur colts, of glorious runs of seven hours hard riding over three counties, and a midnight homeward ride of thirty miles upon their covert hacks, and who ran away from the well-spread table with their mouths full of cold sirloin, to look at that off-pastern, or that sprained forearm, or the colt that had just come back from the veterinary surgeons, set down Robert Audley, dawdling over a slice of bread and marmalade, as a person utterly unworthy of any remark whatsoever. The young barrister had brought a couple of dogs with him, and the country gentleman who gave fifty pounds for a pointer, and travelled a couple of hundred miles to look at a leash of setters before he struck a bargain, laughed aloud at the two miserable curs one of which had followed Robert Audley through Chancery Lane, and half the length of Holborn, while his companion had been taken by the barrister V. et Armi from a costermonger who was ill-using him. And as Robert furthermore insisted on having these two deplorable animals under his easy-chair in the drawing-room, much to the annoyance of my lady, who, as we know, hated all dogs, the visitors at Audley Court looked upon the baronet's nephew as an inoffensive species of maniac. During other visits to the court, Robert Audley had made a feeble show of joining in the sports of the merry assembly. He had jogged across half a dozen ploughed fields on a quiet grey pony of Sir Michael's, and drawing up breathless and panting at door of some farmhouse, had expressed his intention of following the hounds no further that morning. He had even gone so far as to put on, with great labour, a pair of skates, with a view to taking a turn on the frozen surface of the fish-pond, and had fallen ignominiously at the first attempt lying placidly extended on the flat of his back, until such time as the bystander should think fit to pick him up. 
He had occupied the back seat in a dog-cart during a pleasant morning drive, vehemently protesting against being taken uphill, and requiring the vehicle to be stopped every ten minutes in order to readjust the cushions. But this year he showed no inclination for any of these outdoor amusements, and he spent his time entirely in lounging in the drawing-room, and making himself agreeable, after his own lazy fashion, to my lady and Alicia. Lady Audley received her nephew's attentions in that graceful, half-childish fashion which her admirers found so charming, but Alicia was indignant at the change in her cousin's conduct. "'You were always a poor, spiritless fellow, Bob,' said the young lady contemptuously, as she bounced into the drawing-room in her riding-habit after a hunting breakfast, from which Robert had absented himself, preferring a cup of tea in my lady's boudoir. "'But this year I don't know what has come to you. You are good for nothing but to hold a skein of silk, or read Tennyson to Lady Audley.' "'My dear, hasty, impetuous Alicia, don't be violent,' said the young man imploringly. A conclusion isn't a five-barred gate, and you needn't give your judgment its head, as you give your mare Atalanta hers, when you're flying across country at the heels of an unfortunate fox. Lady Audley interests me, and my uncle's county friends do not. Is that a sufficient answer, Alicia?" Miss Audley gave her head a little scornful toss. "'It's as good an answer as I shall ever get from you, Bob,' she said impatiently. But pray, amuse yourself in your own way. Loll in an easy-chair all day, with those two absurd dogs asleep on your knees. Spoil my lady's window-curtains with your cigars, and annoy everybody in the house with your stupid, inanimate countenance." Mr. Robert Audley opened his handsome grey eyes to their widest extent at this tirade, and looked helplessly at Miss Alicia. The young lady was walking up and down the room, slashing the skirt of her habit with her riding-whip. Her eyes sparkled with an angry flash, and a crimson glow burned under her clear brown skin. The young barrister knew very well, by these diagnostics, that his cousin was in a passion. "'Yes,' she repeated, "'your stupid, inanimate countenance. Do you know, Robert Audley, that with all your mock amiability, you are brim-full of conceit and superciliousness? You look down upon our amusements. You lift up your eyebrows, and shrug your shoulders, and throw yourself back in your chair, and wash your hands of us and our pleasures. You are a selfish, cold-hearted Sybarite." "'Alicia! Good gracious me!' The morning paper dropped out of his hands, and he sat feebly staring at his assailant. "'Yes, selfish, Robert Audley. You take home half-starved dogs because you like half-starved dogs. You stoop down and pat the head of every good-for-nothing cur in the village street, because you like good-for-nothing curs. You notice little children, and give them halfpence, because it amuses you to do so. But you lift your eyebrows a quarter of a yard when poor Sir Harry Towers tells a stupid story, and stare the poor fellow out of countenance with your lazy insolence. As to your amiability, you would let a man hit you and say thank you for the blow, rather than take the trouble to hit him again. But you wouldn't go half a mile out of your way to serve your dearest friend. Sir Harry is worth twenty of you, though he did write to ask me if my M-A-I-R Atalanta had recovered from the sprain. He can't spell or lift his eyebrows to the roots of his hair, but he would go through fire and water for the girl he loves, while you— at this very point, when Robert was most prepared to encounter his cousin's violence, and when Miss Alicia seemed about to make her strongest attack, 
the young lady broke down altogether, and burst into tears. Robert sprang from his easy-chair, upsetting his dogs on the carpet. "'Alicia, my darling, what is it?'—'It's—it's—it's the feather of my hat that got into my eyes,' sobbed his cousin. And before he could investigate the truth of this assertion, Alicia had darted out of the room. Robert Audley was preparing to follow her, when he heard her voice in the courtyard below, amidst the tramping of horses and the clamour of visitors, dogs, and grooms. Sir Harry Towers, the most aristocratic young sportsman in the neighbourhood, had just taken her little foot in his hand as she sprung into her saddle. "'Good heaven!' exclaimed Robert, as he watched the merry party of equestrians until they disappeared under the archway. "'What does all this mean? How charmingly she sits her horse! What a pretty figure, too, and a fine, candid, brown, rosy face! But to fly at a fellow like that, without the least provocation! That's the consequence of letting a girl follow the hounds. She learns to look at everything in life as she does at six feet of timber or a sunk fence. She goes through the world as she goes across country, straight ahead and over everything. Such a nice girl as she might have been, too, if she'd been brought up in fig-tree court. If ever I marry and have daughters—which remote contingency may heaven forfend—they shall be educated in paper buildings, take their sole exercise in the temple gardens, and they shall never go beyond the gates till they are marriageable, when I will walk them straight across Fleet Street to St. Dunstan's Church, and deliver them into the hands of their husbands." With such reflections as these did Mr. Robert Audley beguile the time, until my lady re-entered the drawing-room fresh and radiant in her elegant morning costume, her yellow curls glistening with the perfumed waters in which she had bathed, and her velvet-covered sketch-book in her arms. She planted a little easel upon a table by the window, seated herself before it, and began to mix the colours upon her palette, Robert watching her out of his half-closed eyes. "'You are sure my cigar does not annoy you, Lady Audley?' "'Oh, no, indeed. I am quite used to the smell of tobacco.' Mr. Dawson, the surgeon, smoked all the evening when I lived in his house. "'Dawson is a good fellow, isn't he?' Robert asked carelessly. My lady burst into her pretty, gushing laugh. "'The dearest of good creatures,' she said. "'He paid me five and twenty pounds a year. Only fancy! Five and twenty pounds! That made six pounds five a quarter. How well I remember receiving the money!' Six dingy old sovereigns and a little heap of untidy, dirty silver, that came straight from the till in the surgery. And then how glad I was to get it! While well, now! I can't help laughing while I think of it. These colours I am using cost a guinea each at Windsor and Newton's, the carmine and ultramarine thirty shillings. I gave Mrs. Dawson one of my silk dresses the other day, and the poor thing kissed me and the surgeon carried the bundle home under his cloak. My lady laughed long and joyously at the thought. Her colours were mixed. She was copying a water-coloured sketch of an impossibly Turneresque atmosphere. The sketch was nearly finished, and she had only to put in some critical little touches with the most delicate of her sable pencils. She prepared herself daintily for the work, looking sideways at the painting. All this time Mr. Robert Audley's eyes were fixed intently on her pretty face. "'It is a change,' he said, after so long a pause that my lady might have forgotten what she had been talking of. "'It is a change. Some women would do a great deal to accomplish such a change as that.' 
Lady Audley's clear blue eyes dilated as she fixed them suddenly on the young barrister. The wintry sunlight, gleaming full upon her face from a side window, lit up the azure of those beautiful eyes, till their colour seemed to flicker and tremble betwixt blue and green, as the opal tints of the sea change upon a summer's day. The small brush fell from her hand, and blotted out the peasant's face under a widening circle of crimson lake. Robert Audley was tenderly coaxing the crumbled leaf of his cigar with cautious fingers. "'My friend at the corner of Chancery Lane has not given me such good manillas as usual,' he murmured. "'If ever you smoke, my dear aunt, and I am told that many women take a quiet weed under the rose, be very careful how you choose your cigars.' My lady drew a long breath, picked up her brush, and laughed aloud at Robert's advice. "'What an eccentric creature you are, Mr. Audley! Do you know that you sometimes puzzle me?" "'Not more than you puzzle me, dear aunt.' My lady put away her colours and sketch-book, and seating herself at the deep recess of another window, at a considerable distance from Robert Audley, settled to a large piece of Berlin wool-work, a piece of embroidery which the Penelopes of ten or twelve years ago were very fond of exercising their ingenuity upon, the olden time at Bolton Abbey. Seated in the embrasure of this window, my lady was separated from Robert Audley by the whole length of the room, and the young man could only catch an occasional glimpse of her fair face, surrounded by its bright aureole of hazy golden hair. Robert Audley had been a week at the court, but as yet neither he nor my lady had mentioned the name of George Talboys. This morning, however, after exhausting the usual topics of conversation, Lady Audley made an inquiry about her nephew's friend. "'That Mr. George—George,' she said, hesitating. "'Tall boys,' suggested Robert. "'Yes, to be sure, Mr. George Tallboys. Rather a singular name, by the by, and certainly, by all accounts, a very singular person. Have you seen him lately?' "'I have not seen him since the 7th of September last, the day upon which he left me asleep in the meadows on the other side of the village.' "'Dear me!' exclaimed my lady. "'What a very strange young man this Mr. George Tallboys must be! Pray tell me all about it.' Robert told, in a few words, of his visit to Southampton and his journey to Liverpool, with their different results, my lady listening very attentively. In order to tell this story to better advantage, the young man left his chair, and crossing the room took up his place opposite to Lady Audley, in the embrasure of the window. "'And what do you infer from all this?' asked my lady, after a pause. "'It is so great a mystery to me,' he answered, "'that I scarcely dare to draw any conclusion whatever. "'But in the obscurity I think I can grope my way to two suppositions, "'which to me seem almost certainties.' "'And they are?' First, that George Tallboys never went beyond Southampton. Second, that he never went to Southampton at all.' "'But you traced him there. His father-in-law had seen him.' "'I have reason to doubt his father-in-law's integrity.' "'Good gracious me!' cried my lady piteously. "'What do you mean by all this?' "'Lady Audley,' answered the young man gravely, "'I have never practised as a barrister. I have enrolled myself in the ranks of a profession, the members of which hold solemn responsibilities and have sacred duties to perform.' and I have shrunk from those responsibilities and duties, 
as I have from all the fatigues of this troublesome life. But we are sometimes forced into the very position we have most avoided, and I have found myself lately compelled to think of these things. Lady Audley, did you ever study the theory of circumstantial evidence? How can you ask a poor little woman about such horrid things? exclaimed my lady. Circumstantial evidence, continued the young man, as if he had scarcely heard Lady Audley's interruption. That wonderful fabric which is built out of straws collected at every point of the compass, and which is yet strong enough to hang a man. Upon what infinitesimal trifles may sometimes hang the whole secret of some wicked mystery, inexplicable heretofore to the wisest upon the earth? A scrap of paper, a shred of some torn garment, the button off a coat, a word dropped incautiously from the overcautious lips of guilt, the fragment of a letter, the shutting or opening of a door, a shadow on a window-blind, the accuracy of a moment tested by one of Benson's watches, a thousand circumstances so slight as to be forgotten by the criminal, but links of iron in the wonderful chain forged by the science of the detective officer, and lo, the gallows is built up, the solemn bell tolls through the dismal grey of the early morning, the drop creaks under the guilty feet, and the penalty of crime is paid. Faint shadows of green and crimson fell upon my lady's face from the painted escutcheons in the mullioned window by which she sat, but every trace of the natural colour of that face had faded out, leaving it a ghastly ashen grey. Sitting quietly in her chair, her head fallen back upon the amber damask cushions, and her little hands lying powerless in her lap, Lady Audley had fainted away. "'The radius grows narrower day by day,' said Robert Audley. "'George Tallboys never reached Southampton.'" End of chapter 15 Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.